on your feet, find somebody and tell them hello.
Good to see you guys still in town. Otherwise, the town is empty if it weren't for us. People away for the holidays, camping, and what a beautiful weekend it has been. And uh, if it noticed this morning that I am leaning to the left, it's because I threw my back out. And I will answer this because people want to know, how'd you do that? Well, you shouldn't lift a rider mower if you have a bad back. I mean, literally lift it up off the ground. I remember, uh, I remember before I ended up underneath it that uh, Julie's last words were, I really think you should use a jack. You're going to throw your back out. Were those your exact words, Julie? Were those your exact words? I, I'm, on, I'm on medication this morning, so if I look lost, if I fall out, just pick up the notes and just keep reading. But I believe that was your last words, right? I think you said... No, I think you said it before. I think you said you're going to throw your back out. And I said, duh. And then I went to lift. And, and in case you're wondering, I did lift that 7,000-pound machine off the ground. Then I heard a snap. Then I, 
anyway, I've been spending the last 48 hours in bed. Actually, the truth is my daughter had all four wisdom teeth out this weekend. Oh, don't feel sorry for her. She was medicated. And uh, I don't like anybody else getting attention. So uh, <laughs> anyway, I hope you're enjoying this holiday weekend, and I hope you have big plans for tomorrow. Labor Day is a wonderful time. And I uh, hope you get to enjoy that. Thanks for being with us uh, this morning. Uh, if you'll open your worship guide, there's some important stuff in here. Um, and uh, I'm going to let you read most of it. I do want to uh, highlight Pregnancy Help Center is our missionary this week. We want you to be praying uh, for them. So put that on your refrigerator or on your uh, table where you eat so you can be thinking of them. Also, want to mention to you that uh, we are right now in the process of taking nominations for elders and deacons. And uh, if you are a member of Carpenter's Way and you know of somebody who would fit one of those offices as well, the information is in there. It talks about the qualifications and all. Please uh, please participate us with, with us in that, and uh, we would appreciate uh, your involvement there. This Thursday night, we have TNT. Uh, for those who are over 50 or feel like it, um, uh, there, the information, again, for that is in the worship guide. Uh, Julie's going to come up now and make an uh, announcement for women's ministry. You can pray for me. I did tease him yesterday about that. I said, this was supposed to be Annie's weekend. <laughs> she was supposed to get the attention. Okay, I am uh, here because I'd like to get the attention of all the ladies and make several announcements. If you notice in the worship guide, there is a, um, a, a flyer, an insert. And on one side, it talks about our Bible studies that are coming up for the fall. Um, it is on the book of 1 Peter. It is a Bible study book that you will, you will get. Um, 1 Peter is a book written by Peter to Christians who are living in a culture that is very anti-Christian, a very difficult culture to live in. And so it is a very timely study for us to just start thinking about the fact that our culture isn't always very, sometimes not as friendly to us as we would like. And what, what does God have to say to us? And surprisingly, the, the words in 1 Peter are full of hope. They're full of hope. And so I'm really actually very excited to do this study. So if you are at all available, I just really encourage you to jump in on this one. They're going to be, it's going to be offered two different times. So during the daytime, for those that are available, it will be at Nancy Hicks' home um, on Wednesday mornings and then on Sunday evenings, and there will be child care available for that here at the church, and I'll be leading that one. Um, on the back side, you will notice that there's, we're also having a brunch. And I really, 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 I'm excited about this because we haven't been together in a little while. So I really want to encourage you. If you have a few hours that Saturday morning, I know schedules get busy in the fall, but it's on Saturday, September 24th um, at 1030. And just for an hour and a half or so, um, we just want to encourage you to come out, join us, get to know the other ladies, sit around tables together, laugh together, talk together, we'll pray together, um, and really encourage each other. So um, the only entrance to that is bring some food so we can all join that together. Um, some sort of breakfast food, or even if you don't like breakfast food, you can bring something else. Um, we are also going to offer childcare for that. So there are signups for both of these things out on the uh, women's table, and we really want to encourage you. If you're thinking about coming, let us know. You know, go ahead and sign up now. Don't wait till the last minute. But um, we just want to encourage you to take part in that. One last thing, and this is just also on the table. It's not in your worship guide. But there is a conference, it's called Abundance, um, put out by Lifeway, and it's in Dallas um, in October, October 21st and 22nd. And we just wanted to make that available to you, letting you know about it. Encourage you, if you're interested at all, you will enjoy the speakers and, and the musicians. I think Christy Knuckles will be there, and 
Um, some of you, we've, we've done the um, She Reads Truth website together, and some of you might nod and say you remember that. Um, the two ladies that help start that and run that, they're going to be two of the speakers. And I'm, it's just one of those conferences that I wanted to encourage and let you know about. Um, it's not that far away from us. So it's a Friday night and Saturday morning over a Saturday noon. So it's not a real long conference. And just want to encourage you, if you ha need any information on it, the flyers are just out there on the table. So thank you. Thank you, Julie. That was a nice little joke you started with. It's always about me, Julie. <sighs> That's one of the things she forgot in our vows. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to ask our ushers to come forward at this time uh, as we prepare to take our offering. Um, <clears throat> you'll notice in your worship guide, <clears throat> excuse me, also we have uh, some families that joined our church just recently, the Wades, the Carters, the Hodges, the Butlers, um, and, and I... Uh, and Ashley as well. Would you take some time, please, uh, just to uh, notice that? And uh, we're excited about those that God is bringing into our church. And uh, for those of you who are interested in joining Carpenter's Way, we will in the fall have another uh, new members class. It, it goes on during Sunday morning service time, and uh, that's how you come into membership of our church. But uh, we're just glad you're here, and we'll love on you even if you're not a member. So let's, uh, let's commit our time to the Lord. Father, we thank you uh, that we get to gather here each week and to worship you and to, to learn about you and to to talk. And uh, Father, I thank you for Carpenter's Way and what a blessing this church has been to my family and to my heart. And I thank you, um, Father, that we get to do this each week a couple times. And Lord, we think of our family members that are out of town this weekend or just um, taking some time with family. And we thank you that we live in a culture that allows us to do that. And, and God, we, uh, we thank you that uh, we are able to prioritize our family and our relationship with you. And we pray that those would marry well on this holiday weekend. And Father, as most of us get tomorrow off, we pray that this would be a special time. We thank you for the beautiful weather that we have, and just thank you for allowing us to live in East Texas in this gorgeous uh, forest that we do. And so now, Father, we turn our eyes away from all the stuff around us and it's going on outside this building, and now we, we, we entune our ears to you and ask you to speak to us in a very special way. We love you, Father. We thank you for your word that doesn't return void and ask you to use it in our hearts and lives today. In Jesus' name, amen.
disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Could it be the Lord? 
can be seated. There's not GPS today, so the kids are lucky enough to listen to me today. I'll tell you what, we're going to have to work on that. Oh, we love you, Mark Stuff. Um, you know, one of the things uh, I do love about being a pastor, uh, as opposed to being an itinerant preacher or an evangelist, a traveling evangelist, um, is that I, I feel like we get to have an ongoing conversation each week about God, about life, and I... I know that uh, you can't be here every week with family, and a lot of you didn't grow up here, Dallas and Houston, and just getting away, and and sometimes, frankly, you just want to take a Sunday and be with your family. So one of the things that happened a few years back that I love is is our internet. Um, uh, It has been interesting. Um, we, when we changed over to our app uh, this last year, and if you don't have it, you'll need to get that. It's, it's a really cool way to access our videos and archives as well as our prayer requests and all. But uh, when we flipped over from the city to our app recently, um, we pay for a certain amount of bandwidth, which is, it means how much draw people are putting on, the, on our internet. And uh, it's being over exceeded than we anticipated so much because so many of you are watching. And uh, we have people who watch every Sunday across the globe. Uh, but What's really cool is that when you're away, uh, you're able to log in and you're able to watch it and, and stay up with our study, which is really important when you go verse by verse. Uh, it's important because it's a, it's a weekly dialogue and, and one text builds on top of another. And, and uh, I, whether you know it or not, each book of the New Testament, each book of the Bible has a purpose for which it was written. Uh, we're going to talk about more of that when we get into our next study because I'd like to do a small Bible survey on Sunday mornings. Um, explaining how each part plays into why it's there and why did Moses, a lot of you aren't aware, I found out recently that Moses wrote the first five books of the Old Testament. It's, uh, that is referred to, uh, as you know, as, uh, a lot as the Torah. It is, uh, it's written by Moses. There's a purpose for why it was written. But I hope that as we go through these books and these letters in the New Testament together as well, that you begin to realize that each of these aren't just written like, hey, I think I'll write a book. They're written for a very specific purpose. So, Building on that purpose each week is is really, really important, and it's allowed us to have a dialogue, and when we're done here, in most of our Bible studies, we've got about eight or nine adult Bible studies, and then we've got uh, about as many in the student ministry. Most of those Bible studies are actually taking the text that we're studying together and discussing them. Um, I've told you in the past that my goal is uh, is to be at least 70% accurate, and it's your job as a student of the Word of God to figure out the other 30%. Um, I hope it's way more than that, but the fact is, this is a dialogue. It's not the way we've, we've built it to be. This isn't a superstar thing where uh, Chad, who's great with music, that gets to do a Chad show every week, or I get to do a Mark show. This is the time we get together one time as a family, and we get into the Word to see what God has to say to us as a whole. It, it is, it is, uh, the purpose is, is to create an ongoing conversation that's real and authentic and relevant to our lives. Um, most of us uh, grew up being taught the Bible. Um, many of us grew up in, uh, in traditional churches, uh, evangelical churches, where uh, we remember, and, and if you're younger than me, I'm going to lean on this this morning. If you're younger than me, you may not remember this, but for those of us who are about my age, which is falling apart, um, you, you remember being taught that in flannel graph. And uh, usually they were Bible studies that, uh, that were pre-prepared, and our teachers took material home, and they studied it. And they were good materials, but the goal was actually to get us to understand the story and the character of the story, not the battle of the character of the story. I mean, with limited time, uh, the fact is that when you learn about a guy named Jonah, your mind immediately goes to what? 
the whale, which may or may not even be true. It's, it's a big fish, and we go to that. And, we, and over the last few weeks, as we've studied Jonah together, I've had a lot of you say, man, that was such an interesting study, and it was very life-impacting because we never slow down enough to find out why there was a whale and what's going on here, what's in the heart of this guy. And as we went through Jonah, I have to tell you that as I studied through it, I began to realize that Jonah wasn't a, just a guy who lived several thousand years ago, a, a rebellious officer in the kingdom, but he's me. I mean, some of the things, some of the prejudices that he's got, some of the things that he didn't like God doing, really are struggles that I've had in ministry and life. And my hope and my prayer is that as we open this book together, you begin to realize that a lot of what we were taught as kids is true, but is not the whole story. Uh, I grew up in uh, San Diego, as you know. And uh, San Diego, uh, this might shock you because the mojo is after the Beach Boys that it's all surfing and, and it's all surfing and beach and stuff like that. And although that is true, when I grew up in San Diego, it was much more of a country town. Just outside of the city limits, the city was a military town. We had the, uh, the Marines and the Navy that predominantly owned the city. And then just outside of the city was country. Uh, I went to high school in what's known as El Cajon. Uh, it is a it's, uh, it's more urban now, but when I was growing up, it was not uncommon for my friends to have horses. I, I grew up for a long time on a hill behind our church uh, that was very rural. Uh, one of the things we were concerned about each year was fires on that hill. Because if it began, a brush fire began, it was kind of high desert. Uh, it would just keep burning. And I remember some times when, uh, when there was ash falling on our house and we were trying to water it down so that it didn't, it didn't light our, our wood uh, shingles on fire. They are no longer legal because of that. Uh, but I grew up kind of in a country town. Uh, it is interesting because Southern California, um, 75 or 80 years ago, was, was Western, very Western. As Western as Texas, I'm actually going to say. A lot of the cattle was run from Texas all the way through Arizona into the Southern California basin. I have, I, I've told you before that I had an uncle that was a sheriff a great uncle. I had an, another great uncle that was an Indian, and uh, one of uh, the sheriff was eventually, was actually killed out there in a gunfight like, like the Old West stuff. I remember, and my mom and I were talking about this recently, I remember going out to my uncle's house. He was an Indian, and, we, uh, and one time we were out there, and they were all Indians out there. I really need to find out for scholarships how much Indian I have in me. Um, but it, but, but that, that, was, that was my family, and I know it's hard to imagine that, but that's partially because there's a lot of hype that came out of Hollywood about what the Old West was. Uh, we would, um, one of the things my family loved to do is, was we're close to gold country. Southern California is gold country. My, uh, my mom's grandmother's husband was a gold dredger, uh, and uh, that's, that's what he did for a living. He died young of a heart attack. But that's what he did, is he did gold. And, and uh, if you, uh, one, one of our vacations, our favorite vacations was to go, to go to either the gold towns or the silver towns, and we'd go in the mines. And in fact, even as adults, uh, we've taken our kids to some of those towns. We've stayed in a hotel where a lot of the Old West characters that you know their names of did. Uh, and we've been in a lot of the mines. Virginia City, you remember that from Ponderosa. Virginia City is an actual live ghost town. Uh, you can go there and you can walk through the, uh, actually you can crawl through some of the old gold mines if they still, or silver mines, they still let you do that. We went through Bodie. Uh, as adults growing up, we've been three times to Tombstone. We've been to the actual town of Tombstone, and I think I've shown pictures of that before, but I've been to the OK Corral and all those things. And I'll tell you what, what is interesting about that is in much the same way that we learned flannel graph stories about our patriarchs, historical patriarchs of the faith, just like that's been whitewashed, a lot of the historial history, uh, history about the Old West is whitewashed. Uh, for instance, Billy the Kid 
was not really a folk hero as much as he was a messed up orphan kid who was taken in by an English gentleman who he watched get killed. The pain of his life made him a murderer. He was angry and he wanted vengeance upon those who had killed his hero, the man who took care of him. Most people aren't aware of that. Uh, he was, in fact, like much of the street children in Chicago today that have taken to guns and gangs. That's what he did. That was, he was a broken boy. Or Jesse and Frank James were terrorists. I'm sorry if that lets you down, but they were terrorists. They got on trains and they terrorized people. And uh, they were angry men who, after the Civil War, never recovered from it. They never reestablished themselves in a culture, in a community, but they went around and they killed people. Uh, Doc Holliday was an angry dentist. <laughs> he was an angry dentist who at a young age had, had uh, gotten tuberculosis and he knew it was going to kill him. And out of his anger, his anger, he spent his life womanizing and killing people and gambling. He decided that he was going to go out in a blaze of glory. Remember that song from the 80s? That was his purpose in life. And Wyatt Earp, Swallow Deep, was actually, in reality, he was a pimp and an alcoholic who used his time as a sheriff in both Deadwood, Deadwood and Tombstone to actually put down his competition and raise up his, his own economic income. For those of you who watch Tombstone, it's probably one of the best westerns ever made. Sorry, John Wayne. But the movie Tombstone is an excellent movie. It's just fabricated. I mean, he wasn't a good man. And if you go there and you go through the old uh, town and you see the OK Corral and you watch it, you begin to realize that you had a gang war going on between the Earp family and the Cowboys, who themselves were bad people. But he did not go there with a white hat on to clean that town up. He went there to make a billion dollars. And he used the Old West was, was the Wild West, and you took anybody who was willing to be a sheriff to try to uphold those laws. But the laws that he established in that town, like no guns, and I'm, I'm talking mostly to those of you who like this stuff, the rules of no guns were for the sole purpose that he could put his foot down on the neck of anybody that didn't agree with him. Just like today. He wasn't a good man. Um, ironically, a lot of people are not aware, especially because Tombstone, the movie, came out at the same time as a movie called Wyatt Earp. Do you guys remember that? And the movie Wyatt Earp is more accurate. After, he, uh, after Tombstone, he goes around and he kills most of the people who killed his brothers. You guys know that? Well, after that, he eventually moves, he, he leaves his wife, <laughs> he moves up to uh, Alaska where, he's gonna, where he runs gold mines, doesn't make any money there, moves back to Southern California and lives right between San Diego and L.A. He starts, uh, he starts saloon and he runs gambling houses and casinos all the way up the coast. And he becomes friends with Hollywood when it went from uh, silent movies to talkies. Remember that? You've heard that term? And he actually was one of the main guys who helped write all of the movies that, you, that became famous, that made Cowboy famous. For instance, the movie The OK Corral was half written by him. Now you know why he was a hero. Interesting. Go back and you'll find that his best friends were the stars of those movies. He was on set. And so they rewrote the stories to fit a narrative that he wanted. He wanted to be remembered as a good guy, when in fact he wasn't. Well, that's kind of where I want to start today because many, many of us learned of our biblical heroes not, not because people didn't teach us, uh, deceive us in their teachings, but because they didn't fill in the gaps. And the truth is a lot of Sunday school teachers didn't even know it. 
In our study a few years ago, we did a study called Out of Stained Glass, and the idea was that, that I was beginning to realize that people don't realize just how messed up the characters, the patriarchs of Scripture were. For instance, as we went through, uh, we went from the beginning of Genesis all the way through into the second or third chapter of Joshua, and we learned some things. For instance, we learned that Abraham actually tried to give his wife to three different kings in order to spare his own life. And you know what I mean, adults, we've got kids in here, but you know what I mean by give his wife. He told her to play along, just tell them you're my sister, and then they can do whatever they want with you so that he would not be infringed upon. His son Isaac did the same thing twice. Sarah, his wife, laughed at the Lord when he told her that she'd have a baby. Moses refused to circumcise his boys, and on the way back to Egypt, when God finally convinces him to do what he wants him to do, on the way back, God goes to kill his sons, and Moses' wife actually has to circumcise the boys, and you'll remember that she wakes him up in the middle of the night by throwing the foreskin at him and saying, I wish I would have never married you. If you go back, you don't hear anything else about his wife until after the, uh, after the plagues and after the delivered out of Egypt when, when Moses' father-in-law and his wife come to join him. It is reasonable to believe that at that moment she leaves him for a long time. We don't think of stuff like that. We, don't believe the, we, just don't, we just can't fathom that the biblical characters would be so screwed up that, that, that their marriages would even fall apart. Or Joseph, um, we look at him as the guy in the technicolor dream coat, this handsome young man that looks like one of the Osmond boys. But the truth, the truth is that he was a cocky younger brother who wore his coat to flamboyantly say, Dad loves me more than you. And even though we can't imagine throwing your younger brother in a pit, the fact is he had it coming to him. It's not acceptable, but he was kind of a jerk. And later in life, he repents of that. Or you have Esau actually appearing from the Scripture record to be a nicer guy than Jacob, but God chooses Jacob. Or David, who in actuality was a bad dad. Just read the story. And not just a bad dad, but a king who ran the laws of his kingdom so that it benefited his family. When it came to upholding the law with his son who raped his sister, he did not uphold the laws. And God eventually held him in account for that. I mean, these folks were like the folk heroes of the Old West, were remembered often for what we wish they had been rather than what they actually were. Now, I want to be clear. What made these men our patriarchs was not their behavior, my friends, but the mercy and grace of God. Choosing to use this man or this woman and then transforming them by his redeeming power. That's what made them great, just like you and I. And the flannel graph pictures we have of these characters, much like the flannel graph pictures we have of the old Western folk heroes, actually makes them to be men that they, and women that they were not. And in reality, we need a reality check, because if you study the scriptures long enough, you'll find out that they were just like you and I with the same fears and same anger and same panache to sin. And as we have talked through Jonah's story together, we've learned that Jonah isn't about a guy who became fish food. It was about a prophet that resented God's plans for his life because they were to, to have mercy on his national enemies. That's what the story of Jonah was about, and that was not acceptable to the prophet. It wasn't acceptable. And not only... Did Jonah disobey God, but he disobeyed him willfully and, and in a way that, I mean, he went in the absolute opposite direction. He disobeyed God just like you have. When God says, I want you to do this, and you say, I don't want to. That's no different. 
And sometimes we, we look at them as the people we need to emulate when in reality we have to understand that it is the power of God that transformed because nothing has really changed. Not the sin of God's kids or even our feelings. We've been through two of out of stained glass. And, and this week I want to begin a third, and it's just going to be a short series, but it's going to be called Out of Stained Glass 3 because I want you to understand that the feelings that you have, and I've heard a lot of them in my counseling sessions lately, about fear, about feeling like God has abandoned you, about great times of joy when you're on a mission trip that comes back crashing down. And I want to show you from Scripture that that's exactly what happened within the Word of God itself in stories that you're even familiar with. For instance, the first story I want to bring to you today as we're going to talk about fear this morning is out of Acts chapter 9. This is a story that I've actually referred to in recent weeks. But I, I want you just to listen to the story for a second. You can read it along with me. But it says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath. So I'm going to do a lot of scripture today. So they're going to be stories. So Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest. He requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any of the followers of the way. Which, by the way, Christians weren't called Christians in the New Testament. They were called followers of the way. You know why, right? Because Jesus was what? The way, the truth, and life. Which I actually think is a pretty good slanderous uh, name for him. I like that title, except that now it's a cult. But, but uh, so, so he was asking for cooperation in the arrest of the followers of the way he found there. He wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on, his, on this mission, a light from heavenly sud heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Uh, please note there's something people misunderstand. The word lo Lord there in the New Living Translation in most of your Bibles is lowercase. That's because he is not referring to Yahweh here. He's asking, who is this ruler? Who are you that have knocked me off my camel? Who is it? This is an ascension that you have power over me. You've got your foot on my throat, Lord. So, so don't misunderstand. He is not identifying this as the Lord God here. Who are you, Lord, sir? Who are you, sir? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up, go into the city, and you'll be told what you must do. The men with Saul stood speechless, for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw no one. Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the, by the hand to Damascus. He remained there blind for three days and didn't eat or drink. Now there was a believer in Damascus named Ananias. That's uh, us. That's you. The Lord spoke to you in a vision, just a normal Christian guy. Ananias, yes, Lord, notice the capital L there, that's because it's Yahweh, he knows who's talking to him. Yes, Lord, he replied. The Lord said, go over to Straight Street, to the house of Judas. When you get there, ask for a man from Tarsus named Saul. He is praying to me right now. I have shown him a vision of a man named Ananias coming in and laying hands on him so he can see again. But Lord, he exclaimed, I've heard many people talk about the terrible things this man has done to the believers in Jerusalem. And he is authorized by the leading priest to arrest everyone who calls upon your name. But the Lord said, go, for Saul is my chosen instrument to take my message to the Gentiles and to kings as well as the people of Israel. And I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias went. Now, in case you're not clear on what happens in this story, 
Ananias was afraid. I mean, here's a guy who's in this town doing ministry, minding his own business, actually doing ministry in his family and friends. He's heard about this guy named Saul that's coming to arrest them. And God says he's in this town. He's at Judah's house on Straight Street. And I've told him that you're going to come minister to him. If that's you and, my, you and I, that's like being told we're, going to go, we're being called by God to go into a violent mosque where people we know want to kill Christians. And I've told them you're coming, and I want you to do it. And like Ananias, we respond. Hey, these aren't good people, Lord. Are you sure you understand what's going on? I mean, he had reason to be afraid from a human perspective. This is real human fear, which made him want to make sure that God understood what he was asking of him. But Ananias wasn't the only afraid person in Scripture. If you look at Joshua chapter 1, verses 1 to 9, listen to this. After the death of Moses, the Lord's servant, the Lord spoke to Joshua, son of Nun, a, a Moses' assistant. Okay, that gives you some information. So he walked through the wilderness with Moses. They left Egypt together, and he said, Moses, my servant, is dead. Therefore, the time has come for you to lead the people, the Israelites, across the Jordan River into the land I'm giving them. I promise you what I promised Moses. Wherever you set foot, you will be on the land I have given you. From the Negev wilderness in the south to Lebanon mountains in the north, from the Euphrates River in the east to the Mediterranean Sea on the west, including all the land of the Hittites. No one will be able to stand against you as long as you live, for I will be with you as I was with Moses. I will not fail you or abandon you. Be strong and courageous, for you are the one who will lead these people to possess all the land I swore to their ancestors I will give to them. Be strong and very courageous. Be careful to obey all the instructions Moses gave you. Do not deviate from turning either to the right or to the left. Then you will be successful in everything you do. Study this book of instructions continually, meditate it on a day and night, so that you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. This is my command to you, Joshua. Be strong and courageous. Don't be afraid or discouraged, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. I have a dumb question for you. Why in this one conversation does God tell Moses three times to be strong and courageous? Because he wasn't. He's a coward. The truth is, God woke him up and said, I got plans for you, just like Ananias. And, and remember, Joshua had seen these, people, these people's reaction to Moses. They were constantly rebelling, and they saw Moses' reaction to them, and they saw God punish him for it. The fact is that he needed to be told by God, commanded even at the end, to be strong and very courageous, but because this was a scary task God was giving him. This was a scary human task. He goes on in this story to actually meet with the elders of the city and tells them what God told him, and they all respond, we commit ourselves to you like we committed ourselves to Moses, but here's the one thing we ask from you. You know what they asked him to do? Be strong and courageous. Four times in half a chapter. Why? Because he was afraid, my friends. He was afraid. Fear is not just something, though, that Ananias and Joshua felt when they found out what God wanted them to do in their lives. How about Moses? I want you to look at a long text of Scripture with me. It's funny, and we don't laugh enough. We don't laugh enough at Scripture. 
But I want you to look at Exodus chapter 3 and 4 as we read this. One day Moses was tending his flock, the flock of his father-in-law Jethro. I get the idea he's happy enough. The priest of Midian. He led the flock far into the wilderness and came to Sinai, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a blazing fire from the middle of a bush. Moses stared in amazement. Though the bush was engulfed in flames, it didn't burn up. This is amazing, Moses said to him. <clears throat> Sorry. I don't know. If I see a bush burning and it's not burning up, this is a funny conversation. Okay. Why isn't that bush burning up? I must go see it. When the Lord saw Moses coming to take a closer look, God called to him from the middle of the bush. Moses, Moses, here I am, Moses replied. Don't come any closer, the Lord warned. Take off your sandals, for you're standing on holy ground. I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of uh, Isaac, and the God of Jacob. When Moses heard this, he covered his face because he was afraid to look at God. I want to pause for a second. I want you to notice that when God introduces himself to Joshua, Joshua knows exactly who he is. I want you to notice that when Ananias hears the voice of the Lord, he knows exactly who he is. What does this tell you about Moses' relationship with God? What does it tell you about his relationship with God that he hasn't circumcised his boys? Tells you that he's not walking with God. Tells you that he's in full-out rebellion. Tells you that he's satisfied being out of Egypt and he doesn't care about those Jews anymore. Then the Lord told him, I have certainly seen the oppression of my people in Egypt. I have heard their cries of distress because of their heart, because they're harsh slave drivers. Yes, I am aware of their suffering. So I have come down to rescue them from the power of the Egyptians and lead them out of Egypt into their own fertile and spacious land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. Look, the cry of the people of Israel has reached me, and I have seen now how harshly the Egyptians abused them. Now go, for I am sending you to Pharaoh. You must tell, uh, lead my people of Israel out of Egypt. Moses swallowed hard and protested to God. Who am I to appear before Pharaoh? Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? By the way, it's the first question that he's most fearful of. You remember why? Because he killed, I mean, he had killed the, uh, uh, the, the slave master of Egypt and had to run for his life out of Egypt. So he's afraid that he's going to get killed. The second part is just a set, an, uh, another argument. Who am I to lead the people of Israel out of Egypt? God answered, I will be with you. And this is your sign that I am the one who has sent you. When you have brought people out of Egypt, you will worship God at this very mountain. But Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them the God of your ancestors sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? God replied to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my eternal name, my name to remember for all generations. Now go and call together all the elders of Israel. Tell them Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and Jacob has appeared to me. He told me I have been watching closely, and I see how the Egyptians are treating you. I have promised to rescue you from your oppression in Egypt. I will lead you to the land flowing with milk and honey, the land where the Canaanites hit Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites now live. The elders of Israel will accept your message. Then you and the elders must go to the king of Egypt and tell him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. So please, let us take a three-day journey into the wilderness to offer sacrifice to the Lord our God. But I know that the king of Egypt will not go, uh, will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. Are, are, you, are you listening and, and thinking about this? So Moses is thinking of excuses not to go while God's explaining exactly what he can expect. 
But I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand forces him. So I will raise my hand and strike the Egyptians, performing all kinds of miracles among them. Then at last he will let you go, and I will cause the Egyptians to look favorably on you. They will give you gifts, and you will go, uh, so you will not leave empty-handed. Every Israelite woman will ask for articles of silver and gold and find clothing from her Egyptian neighbors and from the foreign women in their houses. You will dress your sons and daughters with these, uh, stripping the Egyptians of their wealth. I don't know about you, but if the God of the universe tells me that, I'm kind of excited. That's like, I don't know, that's like playing a football game you know you can't lose. But not Moses. Chapter 4, verse 1. But Moses protested again. What if they don't believe me or listen to me? What if they say, the Lord never appeared to you? Then the Lord asked him, what's in your hand? A shepherd's staff, Moses replied. Throw it down on the ground, the Lord told him. So Moses threw down the staff and it turned into a snake. Moses jumped back like I did in my living room when I found it in the hallway. I added that. Then the Lord told him, reach out and grab its tail. <laughs> yeah, right. I, I added that too. <laughs> So Moses reached out and he grabbed it and turned back into a shepherd's staff in his hand. Perform this sign, the Lord said, and they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, Abraham, Isaac, and the God of Jacob, really has appeared to you. Then the Lord said to Moses, now put your hand inside of your cloak. So Moses put his hand inside of his cloak, and when he took it out again, his hand was white as snow with a severe skin disease. Now put your hand back in your cloak, the Lord said. So Moses put his hand back in, and when he took it out again, it was as healthy as the rest of his body. Then the Lord said to Moses, if, you do not believe, if they do not believe you and are not convinced by the first miraculous sign, then they will be convinced by the second sign. And if they don't believe you or listen to you even after these two signs, then take some water from the Nile and pour it out on dry ground. When you do, the water from the Nile will turn to blood on the ground. But Moses pleaded with the Lord, Lord, uh, I'm not very good with words. Uh, please. Uh, by the way, it doesn't say that he ever had a stuttering problem. We added that. Hollywood added that. Uh, actually, it doesn't even say that he had a communication problem. It says that was his excuse, like everything else. I never have been, and, and, and I'm not even now, e even though you've spoken to me. I get, I get tongue-tied, and my words get tangled. Then the Lord asked Moses, who makes a person's mouth? <laughs> who decides whether people speak or don't speak, hear or don't hear, or see or don't see? Wow. Now we know God's in charge of death, or deafness and muteness. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I'll be with you as you speak, and I will instruct you in what to say. But Moses again pleaded, Lord, please send anybody but me. Think he's afraid? Then the Lord became angry with Moses. All right, he said. What about your brother Aaron, the Levite? I know he speaks well, and look, he's on his way to meet you now. <laughs> You don't think that's funny? He hasn't seen his brother in years. And this just happens to be the day he shows up. You think God knows how we feel? You think God made some plan for even our feelings? What about your brother? He's on his way to meet you now. He will be delighted to see you. Talk to him and put, put the words in his mouth. I will be with both of you as you speak, and I will instruct you both in what to do. Aaron will be your spokesman to the people. He will be your mouthpiece, and you will stand in the place of God for, tell, uh, for him, telling him what to say. And take your shepherd's staff with you and use it to perform the miraculous signs that I have shown you. So Moses went. Fear. Think David was ever afraid? Have you ever read the Psalms? Or the disciples, who literally physically walked with Jesus. Have you ever wondered that? If only I could see you. If only I could tap you on the shoulder or grab your prayer shawl and just say, what are we doing? The disciples were afraid of what they would eat and where they would sleep. 
They were afraid of the crowds leaving. Have you ever felt that? I mean, we look at, we look at Isaiah 55, verse 9. And it is interesting to me because in one of these studies in the coming weeks, I'm going to show you one Psalm 139 from a Hebrew perspective. We always look at that as a wonderful psalm. But look at this. For just as, he- as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are your ways, uh, so my ways are higher than your ways, and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. If you're honest, sometimes that's a frustrating thought. I mean, truthfully speaking, sometimes we throw this verse out and we go, God's ways are higher than ours. Thank God for God. But inside, we're kind of going, it'd be nice if you gave us a little information here. But from what I just read you, a little more information doesn't make us less afraid. Sometimes it makes us more afraid. You see, he's God, and we're not. We're his kids. And he didn't just save us from hell. He adopted us into the family business. And that family business got him killed. And we're just trying to live a good life down here. At peace, hanging out, not causing problems, fixing our lawnmower. We're just trying to live. Sometimes I want to scream, if you just tell me a little bit more, God, I, I feel like I'm kind of like the guy in Mark chapter 9 whose son is sick and he asked God to heal him. And the Lord says, you need to trust me. And he says, I do believe in you. And in Mark 9, 24, I love this. Have you ever said that to God? I know you're God. Help me know it more. I do believe in you. Help me with my unbelief. I mean, most of you here, and I want to say this just like I have the last few weeks, I know that most of you love Jesus with all your hearts. I also know you're struggling with sin, and I know some of you aren't struggling with sin. You're just diving into it. But I know, I know that as a child of God, you'd love to live a life that honors Him. But this is our prayer. I believe that you're the only one who can save me, so thank you for saving me. But my life is scary and depressing and sad. Help me to believe more so it's not so scary and sad and depressing. Fear. What a quandary we have as God's kids. As humans, when God asks us to prepare to be a sacrifice, like Abraham, can you even fathom what it was like the, Lord, the day the Lord told him that he's going to put a knife in his son's chest? I mean, we never even talk about the morality of that question. That's his son that you gave him and you want him to sacrifice him? You want him to kill him? You want to have courage as a conversation as believers? How about engaging that one? Well, our God doesn't believe in human sacrifices. Then why do you ask him to do it to Isaac? Well, he didn't go through with it. Still asked him to do it. God would never ask me to do more than I could prepare to handle. That's not true. I could never, I could never put a knife in Zach's chest. If God told you you could, it'd be a long conversation. I mean, if we can just put the flannel graph and the stained glass away and look at the reality, there's a life that's being lived and we're, we're trying to do what Micah 6.8 says, do justly, love mercy, and humbly walk with God. But then God interferes with our life and he asks us to do stuff. And we're left with saying, I believe, but help me overcome my unbelief. In Matthew chapter 10, verses 26 to 30, Jesus said this to his disciples, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid of those who will threaten you, for a time is coming when everything that is covered will be, will be revealed and all that is secret will be made known to all. What I tell you now in the darkness, shout abroad to when the daylight comes. What I whisper in your ear, shout from the housetops. 
for all to hear. Don't be afraid of those who want to kill your body. They can't touch your soul. Fear only God. Do you know why he's saying this to them? Why do you think he's telling the disciples not to be afraid? Don't think deeply. Somebody tell me. Because they are. Because they are afraid. Fear only God who can destroy, bo destroy both your soul and your body in hell. What is the price of two sparrows, one copper coin? But not a single sparrow can fall to the ground without your father knowing it. And the very hairs on your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, for you are more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. And yet every one of these guys but John ends up being killed for his faith. Well, that's not very loving. This conversation that Jesus is having with these disciples is not about comfort. It's about value. It's about value. You're precious to God. So when he does sacrifice you, it's a worthy cost. God is good, but he is not safe. And the person who told you he's safe lied to you. Whether you're Moses living out your days in the Negev, tending sheep, or you're a dude living in Damascus, walking with God, and God calls you to minister to a murderer of Christians, or you're you living in East Texas and God says, trust me, in this economy and in these circumstances with your children and with your, your health, trust me with that. But what if he doesn't heal me the way I want to be healed? Because you're so precious to him, you should know that he's making this very difficult fatherly decision. That's exactly what he just told the disciples. He didn't say, just pray and God will solve it. He says, just remember, you're more valuable to God than a whole flock of sparrows. God knows. He gets it. And he's calling us to invest our heart, life, and soul into him and his eternity, not in the here and now. Because the reality is, whether it's the characters of Scripture I just told you about or us, what we fear is the pain now because we want comfort now. We want comfort we want a good life, an easy life, a healthy life. And we know in our heart that we've seen God take that from people, and we just don't want Him to take it from us. And so there's fear. There's a quandary. The same quandary Jonah had when he looked at the possibility that God would show mercy to his national enemies. Or the same quandary Ananias had who loved serving God but just didn't want to go to this particular guy. Or the fear that Moses had to face Pharaoh again. God will ask from you the undoable. That is not a new lesson. Jesus said that. If anybody wants to follow me, pick up your cross, put your ambition aside and follow me. It's always been scary. But our command is to be courageous. Courage isn't the absence of fear. It's confidence in knowing you're doing the right thing. And as a child of God, it means putting your trust in God that his plans are best. Look what he said to the disciples in Matthew chapter 6. This is their training for ministry. 
Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. Your eye is a lamp that provides light for your body. When your eye is good, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is bad, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness... How deep the darkness is. For no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You can't serve both God and money. You can take money here and talk about life. You can't, we can't serve God and this life. It's not possible. It's not possible. If you don't, if you don't, (laughs) that's scary because I can't dive. Uh, If you can't, if you can't, don't believe what I just said, that you can't do both, and you don't believe what Jesus is saying to them, look at your life. Who's winning? At the characters I just, just read to you, life is winning. It always does in our flesh. Ananias didn't want to die. Jonah didn't want to see those people redeemed. That would have been bad news, and it was bad news for Israel. Joshua didn't want to lead a bunch of rebellious sheep. It was bad for his comfort. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. That is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life. There's Jesus' answer. What? I've been asked, since we've been talking politically, and I've been telling you to trust in the Lord, so you just want me not to worry about it? That's what Jesus just said. Go ahead and vote. Go on with your life. What if it turns dark? Can't stop it anyway. Last time I checked, everybody up there is lying. Nobody seems to care. There's so much deceit in Washington. You think, stopping. This is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you have enough food and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store up food in barns, for your heavenly Father feeds them. And aren't you far more valuable to him than they? Again, it's about value. It's not about ownership. It's value. It's not about comfort, I mean. It's about value. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field and how they grow. They don't work or make their clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory wasn't dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? Um, because. So don't worry about the, the, these things. Saying, what will we eat or what will we drink? What will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously, and he will give you everything you need. He'll give you your needs. So don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today has enough for today. Well, I don't like that message. I like the one where you pray and get. So do I. So would Ananias. So would Moses. So would Joseph. Joseph's brothers. And David. 
and Saul and Noah and Adam and Eve and Peter and Paul. You see, the thing, the thing is, you guys, we're just like them. Read their words. Have you forgotten me, God? The reason that Ananias and Joshua and Moses and David and the disciples feared is because they were putting more eggs in the basket of life than the basket of eternal life. We cry out to God like they did when we want God to fix what it is we're afraid of. And, and God says to us often, like he said to these folks, have courage, I got this, hold on, it's going to be okay. Well, what if I die first? It'll be even better than you could fa- fa- possibly fathom if I allow that to take place. Courage is not the absence of fear. It's doing the right thing even when we're afraid. And to do that, you have to be convinced that God loves you, He's aware of your circumstances, and He values you more than stuff. But you have to understand that God will sacrifice your convenience in this life for His will. But that's why we go home. That's retirement. This is work. This is our work. That's our retirement. Save up for retirement. Save up for retirement. Invest in your retirement. That's all he's asking us to do. Listen to Isaiah 41.10. Don't be afraid, for I am with you. Don't be discouraged, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you, and I will hold you with my victorious right hand. You're not alone in your fear or in the journey that's scary. You want to know What made a very flawed and very afraid David a man after God's own heart? Look at Psalm 3. Look at this with me. This is so cool. Oh, Lord, this is his heart. I have so many enemies. So many are against me. So many are saying, God will never rescue him. But you, oh, Lord, are a shield around me. You are my glory, the one who holds my head high. I cried to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy mountain. I lay down and slept, yet I woke up in safety, for the Lord was watching over me. I am not afraid of 10,000 enemies who surround me on every side. And yet he says this, Arise, O Lord, rescue me, my God. <laughs> well, that wasn't funny to you? He just said that God is his, spares him from everything, so I'm not afraid. And then he asked God to save his life. That sounds like a, fe- a prayer of fear. There's a quandary within David. There's a flesh that says, I'm being killed. They hate me. What's going on? And there's a part of him that goes, I know God's got this. I know it. And I want to encourage you tonight or this morning to let you know and remind you that fear is part of the human experience that's left over from the flesh. It is overcome by faith in knowing that God is good and knowing that he values you, not that he will always rescue you from every circumstance. In the end, he will rescue you. Right now, he has already rescued you, but there is death between then and now. And we must be people of courage. Not people of hate, not people of fear, but people of courage who are honest enough to say, though I am afraid, I will trust in him. Though I am weak, he will be my strength. Though I feel defeated, I know that I am more than victorious in Christ. Arise, O Lord, and rescue me, my God. Slap my enemies in the face. (laughs) Shatter the teeth of the wicked. (laughs) 
Amen. What? That, that doesn't bother you, that prayer? This is a real dude. Smash their teeth. Because you won't let me do it. <laughs> break, their, break their face. <laughs> okay, I love it. That's, that's not good. Don't do this, children, please. There are kids in the room. Victory comes from you, O Lord. May you bless your people. Too often uh, you are promised things from preachers that God did not promise and too often are not made aware of what God did promise. And here's what he promises you as his kid from Isaiah 43. Do not be afraid, for I have ransomed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you go through deep waters, I'll be with you. When you go through the rivers of difficulty, you won't drown. When you walk through the fires of oppression, you will not be burned up. The flames will not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I'm sorry. Fear is part of the human experience, even of the child of God. I really am sorry. I wish it wasn't. I wish all those things that were promised by preachers, if you give the right amount of money, are true, but they're not. It's part of the human experience. So here's my encouragement for those of us who live in fear. Put your hope in God. Don't hold on tighter. Let go. Do the counterintuitive thing. How's it working for you anyway? Give it to God. Put your hope there. Put their hope in the one who is the king of all that. Because Ananias, despite being afraid, still had to minister to Saul. Moses still had to face Pharaoh. Joshua still had to lead that silly group of rebellious people. And David still had to face his demons and his enemies. But every one of them, at this moment, are more than victorious. Every one of them. They stand with the Lord. No fear, no tears, no sickness. And that awaits you. Join them. Join them. Put your hope in God. Remember David's words? Why so downcast? Why so upset? Put your hope in God. Lord Jesus, we are a fearful people. Help us to put our hope in you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, I'm going to be quiet for about 30 seconds. And you and you and God alone know where your fear lies and what terrifies you, what wakes you up at 3 o'clock in the morning. And my brothers and sisters, I want you to give that to God right now where you're at. I want in your mind's eye you to see yourself handing that to him, that thing that terrifies you. Give it to him And I want you to say, I believe you can handle this. Help me with my unbelief. Holy Spirit, you have heard the prayers of your children. 
And I ask that you, Father, would answer them. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Bible study is going to start in 10 minutes.